Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Institute for Government event. Uh, it's a launch for our new report, which we published last week, which is entitled uh, Legislating by Consent, How to Re Revive the Seal Convention. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to look at it yet, it's available on our website. And I want to thank the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust, who have sponsored both the report and the event today. So thanks very much to them. A little bit about the report before we kick off. Um, it covers really the history, the constitutional function and the practical benefits of the Seal Convention. Um, and as uh, many of you will know, that's the convention under which Westminster doesn't normally legislate in devolved areas without consent from the devolved legislatures that are affected by that legislation. And the report makes the argument that having served as a pillar of the Westminster devolved relationship for the last two decades, the Seal Convention has been placed under serious strain, first by Brexit and now most recently by the UK Internal Market Bill, for which we think consent is unlikely to be given by any of the uh, devolved legislatures. The report sets out eight recommendations for reform of legislative consent process. And these are designed to revive and strengthen the Seal Convention and to improve how the UK government and Parliament deal with devolution issues and engage with their devolved counterparts. So how are we going to uh, run the event today? Uh, we're going to kick off with Akash Pound, uh, who's one of our senior fellows at the Institute of Government and one of the authors of the report. Uh, he's going to take us through its main conclusions and recommendations in a little bit more detail. Then we have a great panel who are going to give us their thoughts and, and responses uh, uh, to the report. Uh, we'll begin with uh, Karen Bradley, MP, then we'll move on to Pete Wishart, uh, and then uh, we're lucky enough to have uh, Mick uh, Antoniv, who's a member of the Welsh Senate, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about them in a minute. Once we've had their responses from the panel, uh, then we'll move into Q&A but you don't need to wait until uh, all that has happened before you start submitting your, your questions, which you'd like answered uh, by the panel or Akash in the uh, using the Q&A function in, in um, Teams. Um, and if you're tweeting about the event, which we're very happy for you to do, please use the hashtag IFGDevo. So a few words about our panel before we move on. Karen Bradley uh, is the MP for Staffordshire Moreland, has been since 2010. She is, of course, a former Secretary of State uh, for Northern Ireland and has been the chair of the House of Commons Procedure Committee since January 2020. Pete Wishart, MP, uh, is the longest serving SNP MP and represents Perth and North Perthshire and has done since 2001. And he's currently the SNP's shadow spokesperson for the Cabinet Office and the Constitution and has been chair of the House of Commons Scottish Affairs Committee since 2015. Mick Antoniv is a member of the Welsh Senate um, and he has been a Welsh Labour and Cooperative Senate member for Pontypris since 2011 and is currently chair of the Assembly's Legislation, Justice and Constitution Committee. The committee considers legislative consent memorandums as well as any other matters relating to justice and the Constitution. And Akash Pound, who is going to speak first, um, is a senior fellow at the IFG. He leads our devolution team and has worked at the IFG for over a decade. Um, the Devo team are currently looking at uh, a number of different devolution related issues, including how the devolved institutions are funded, how the UK and devolved governments have worked together during the coronavirus pandemic, and we're planning future work looking at the performance of public services uh, across the UK, the future of the union, and where next for devolution within England. So I think Akash is going to be busy. Uh, but I'm going to turn to him first now to just give us a bit of an introduction to the report and its main uh, conclusions and recommendations. Akash. Thank you, Hannah. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for joining. Thanks especially um, to our panel um, who Hannah has just introduced. And I, I really look forward to um, hearing the, the comments from each of the three of uh, them in a few moments. Special thanks. Uh, also due to my co-author Kelly Shuttleworth. Hello Kelly, who's uh, watching and live tweeting this event at the moment for the Institute for Government um, Twitter account. So Hannah has already uh, given uh, some background to um, uh, background about the project and, and the report, including the definition of the Sewell Convention, so I won't repeat that. Um, and as she also mentioned, and as we discuss in detail in our paper, the Sewell Convention 
quite quickly actually after 1999 became a central part of the of the UK uh, territorial constitution and devolution arrangements um, and indeed it has even deeper historical roots than that it goes back to the way that Westminster engaged with um, the old Northern Ireland Parliament um, in the previous era of devolution. Consent in the, the two and a bit decades uh, since 1999 has been given for over 200 Acts of Parliament. Um, there have been up to now, I, uh, I think the figures around 400 consent motions in total across the three devolved legislatures and disputes um, over consent have been on the whole rare. Uh, prior to Brexit, and we'll certainly come back to that uh, caveat, the Scottish Parliament and Northern Ireland Assembly had each refused consent for a, uh, a UK bill on just one occasion each. And in both cases, the issue was then swiftly resolved by means of amendments to the legislation passed at Westminster. There have been a few more disagreements in the case of Wales, um, often because of uh, the greater degree of uncertainty in the Welsh devolution settlement about precisely where the line lies between what is uh, and what is not devolved, um, and therefore whether or not consent is required. But overall, the consent process has worked um, smoothly and it has delivered a number of benefits to um, all sides. Um, so first and very importantly, it's protected the political autonomy of, of the devolved nations and of the devolved institutions within their spheres of competence, albeit within a wider constitutional framework um, that preserves parliamentary sovereignty. Um, Sewell has also um, encouraged and facilitated cooperation between the governments because the need to secure consent means that uh, government departments in Whitehall have the incentive to engage early on in the policy process um, to try to uh, reach agreement and avoid disputes later on and, and it's mostly worked well in that respect. Um, it also helps provide for consistency of law across the UK in many areas where that's favoured by all sides, um, including sometimes, for instance, to um, ensure consistent implementation of um, international commitments. And it allows for um, swift nationwide action in times of crisis. And a good example of that would be the passage with consent of the Coronavirus Act earlier this year. Um, but Brexit has placed the Sewell Convention under serious strain. Um, we've seen the passage by the UK Parliament of two key pieces of Brexit legislation in, in 2018 and again at the start of this year without the consent of at least one of the devolved legislatures. And as mentioned, a big battle is now underway um, on the UK Internal Market Bill, which was drafted with little, if any, uh, devolved input um, by all accounts, despite its very significant impact on the devolved institutions. As things stand, uh, consent to the bill um, is like unlikely to be forthcoming, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that issue um, over the over the coming um, 50 minutes or so. Um, consent has also yet to be granted for a number of other Brexit related bills, including on trade and immigration, the environment and agriculture, although in some of those cases the, the disagreements are not so severe. But nonetheless, if agreement is not reached on um, any of those bills, then the UK Parliament will have to decide um, whether or not to press ahead without consent. And to do so, again, we argue in the paper, would have potentially serious consequences for UK devolved relations, for the stability of devolution and potentially the union itself. And so in that context, we have uh, published our paper that sets out um, eight recommendations for reform. They are, of course, detailed in, uh, in full, um, in the report, and I do hope people take the time to, to read it. But just in brief, uh, we have recommended the following. First, we think the UK government should accept, formally accept, that the Sewell Convention applies in the exact same way for to legislation that amends the powers of the devolved bodies, 
which the UK Internal Market Bill does, as it does to legislation in already devolved areas. And that, that might sound like a bit of a, uh, a technical point, but um, without that guarantee, the concern at the devolved level is that Westminster might legislate to take uh, powers back uh, unilaterally to uh, to Westminster. So it is a very important issue. Second, we think the UK and devolved governments should uh, reach agreement on what are the limited set of circumstances in which it may be legitimate for legislation in devolved areas to be passed without consent. The Seal Convention refers to what should happen normally. Um, <clears throat> And it should be in only exceptional circumstances that it is disregarded. But in in certain uh, crises and so on, that, that there would be a case for um, legislation without consent. Uh, but it should not be for the UK government to unilaterally state, um, perhaps when it becomes apparent that consent is not forthcoming, that, oh, well, the circumstances are exceptional. We're going to have to proceed regardless. Third, um, Importantly, the government should not introduce into Parliament any bill where Sewell applies if that bill has not been shared in advance, ideally an agreed period of, of a few weeks, uh, with the devolved governments. Um, and again, that, that is what happens when the process is working well, but it has not happened um, on a few of the, the cases already mentioned. <clears throat> then, coming forward to the legislative process itself. When a bill is introduced into Parliament, our fourth recommendation, we suggest the government should lay alongside it a devolution statement that sets out um, whether and why consent is needed, whether it is expected, and how the devolved governments have been involved in the process of, of drafting the legislation. Um, and then if there's disputes um, un unresolved at that point, what their plan is to try and resolve those. Um, and this would help to improve um, accountability of the process. Fifth, then, a committee of the UK Parliament um, should scrutinise this devolution statement and consider the wider set of devolution and consent issues, taking evidence, if necessary, uh, from both UK and devolved um, administrations and then report to Parliament on the state of play. Um, sixth, relatedly, if there is disagreement over whether a bill does relate to devolved matters and therefore whether consent should be sought, the committee should seek independent legal advice on this issue and incorporate that in its report to Parliament. And again, the point is that it is not legitimate in our view for the UK government simply to, 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 to declare, based on our um, unpublished analysis, um, we don't need to seek consent for this issue, so we're going to just proceed without going through the, the, the consent process. Um, and there's no way for the devolved administrations to challenge that. And that has happened um, on, on, on a few occasions. Um, seventh, then, if ultimately, and as we say, this should be in exceptional circumstances, the government does wish to proceed um, at the end of the legislative process without consent, then a minister should make a statement to each House of Parliament setting out in detail the reasons why they've reached that conclusion. And then each House should consider that issue and vote on a motion of whether to proceed or not with the bill. And that's to ensure that this cannot happen um, surreptitiously. And, and if, if Westminster is going to take this decision, to disregard the consent requirement. It does so openly and is held to account <clears throat> and holds the government to account um, for that um, for that course of action. Finally, eighth, we suggest that there should be fuller public information provided about the consent status of all bills before Parliament in order to make clearer um, what is currently not clear, the connection between the consent process at the devolved level and the legislative process in Westminster. So that's our suite of recommendations. They are um, intended to, as mentioned, improve uh, transparency, to sharpen accountability and to strengthen intergovernmental and interparliamentary relations. They're not the only ways to achieve those objectives and I'm very interested now to hear thoughts on those ideas and, and alternatives as well. But I do believe that they would mark an improvement on current practice. Um, there are also more radical approaches that one could take. 
um, something more like a, a legally enforceable consent requirement or even a, a federal constitution. And there might be a case for debate about those matters. But our approach has been very much to set out proposals that we think could be implemented within the current constitutional framework, um, at least if there is um, sufficient political will and a genuine desire to repair the UK devolved relationship. And that's an important caveat. Um, so I will stop there. Thank you all for listening. And I very much look forward to the thoughts of the other panelists. Thanks very much, Akash. And uh, indeed, some of the points you were flagging at the end there have already come up on the uh, Q&A. So I'm sure we'll be getting into those questions later. Um, but can we turn now to Karen? Um, you're obviously chair of the of the Commons Procedure Committee. Uh, what's your view on, on these proposals and indeed on the, the current state of um, House of Commons procedures and, and how they deal with devolution? Thank you, Hannah, and thank you, Akash. That was a very interesting and uh, informative uh, introduction into what is a detailed and very thoughtful report. Um, I suppose I have a, a slightly unique perspective on this because as well as being chair of the House of Commons Procedure Committee, which is the committee that looks at how Commons business, public business is conducted uh, and whether it can be, the, our procedures can be improved, um, uh, I was also, as you've already referred to, a the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So I have had the experience of sitting through uh, devolution, devolved settlements type arrangements. For example, the JMC, which is a, 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 a interministerial forum that meets, probably should meet more regularly than it does. Uh, and I can't say how often it's meeting at the moment, but I would have said that actually uh, you probably can't have too many JMCs, though those that take part in it might disagree at times. But it is really important that we do have uh, as much communication and discussion between the devolved legislatures as is possible. Now, of course, when I was Northern Ireland Secretary, it was a time when we didn't have um, any uh, devolved governments in Northern Ireland. So I had a slightly different take on it than my other territorial office uh, counterparts because uh, the Seal Convention didn't come into play in terms of uh, the work that we were doing as to whether we were looking to get legislative consent from Northern Ireland. Now, um, with my procedure committee hat on, um, it's clear to me that there are uh, issues that need to be looked at. And I think, you know, You've talked about Sewell and when it was encapsulated at, back in the late 90s when the devolution settlements were written. I suppose there's, there's a couple of differences from then to today. Um, and, and you're right to say, of course, Akash, that Sewell was, uh, was an unwritten, an unspoken convention between uh, Westminster and the Northern Ireland uh, legislature up to 1972. Um, when uh, obviously direct rule was reintroduced in Northern Ireland, but there was devolved government in Northern Ireland between 1922 and 1972. And, and, and Sewell effectively operated at that time. It just wasn't spoken about. But when Sewell was first encapsulated, uh, when the devolution settlements were being uh, developed, there were two differences. The first was that actually there wasn't that much political difference between the devolved legislatures across the United Kingdom, that actually the government in Westminster was of a similar political hue to the governments in uh, Cardiff and Edinburgh, certainly. And the other difference was that we were a member of the EU. So much of the devolution settlement revolved around matters or involved matters which were devolved, which were competencies of the EU. And therefore, a lot of stuff that we're now going through at the moment through Brexit just simply didn't need to be written. It didn't need to be uh, codified. It didn't need to be discussed um, because those matters were actually the remit of Brussels, not the remit of Westminster or Holyrood or Cardiff or Stormont. And so uh, this means that everything has been brought to the fore at this current time. And you, you've talked about the current internal markets bill. That is the bill that we'll probably see the biggest challenge to Sewell um, that we've seen for some time because of the differences of opinion across the uh, the four legislatures. Um, it was put to me that, you know, we used to talk about fixing the roof while the sun shines. Well, we're trying to fix the roof now while there's a massive thunderstorm going on. And um, that's quite a difficult thing. But I think there's some great, uh, great points that the IFG have made. Um, you asked a direct question, Hannah, about how does the House of Commons procedures 
tackle this? And 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 that's a really important question and one that we've been we've been questioning on the procedure committee. And that's why uh, I'm pleased to announce you get you get the exclusive uh, announcement that actually uh, we agreed yesterday that we will conduct an inquiry into how the devolved settlements work and how Sewell operates today in this new constitutional arrangement for the United Kingdom. And we'll certainly be looking at some of the, uh, at all the points that the IFG have put forward and more, I'm sure. But I think I'm particularly interested, uh, some points there that I thought were really interesting. The, the idea of common agreement, which could take some of the sting out of Sewell, it could make it much easier if there is a common agreement over those areas where um, Parliament would normally consent, a sort of reverse Sewell, I suppose, um, is a really interesting idea um, and one that I think we will want to look at in more detail. I do concur with the conclusion you reach about not putting Sewell on a statutory footing. I think that uh, we have seen how uh, the different legal systems across the United Kingdom can have different interpretations of matters uh, that the UK Parliament or other parliaments might legislate for and putting it on a statutory footing. Uh, I think this is not the time for that. If ever there is going to be a time, this is not it. Um, and, and I guess the final point I'll just make is that we're looking at Sewell now and, and we're all interested in it because there's, a, there's matters of conflict. There is there is debate, there's discussion. But you're right, you've pointed out that Sewell can work really well without anybody really noticing when there is harmony. And the coronavirus uh, regulations are, uh, definitely is an area where you could stand up and say Sewell has worked really well. And the, the right level of communication, the right level of discussion means you can get really difficult legislation uh, on the statute book across the UK in a harmonious way. Now, there may be some debates that might be had in the House of Commons over the next few weeks about whether there's been enough scrutiny of that legislation, certainly in Westminster. But I think no one could disagree that Sewell has worked in a seamless way and none of us have been talking about it on the on the actual regulations themselves. So uh, with that, I'm looking forward to hearing what the other panellists have to say. And as I say, we've, we've started our inquiry, we've opened the inquiry and we'll be asking for evidence. And I hope that the IFG and many of the people listening to this uh, event will be um, able to give us some uh, contributions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen. And uh, now we're going to move on to Mick Antoniv, who is, as I said, chair of the Welsh Parliament's Legislation, Constitution and Justice Committee. Mick, we've heard the sort of view from Westminster uh, and from the, the people in Westminster who are, like Karen, reflecting on how Sewell's working. Um, what, what's the perspective like from the Welsh Senate? Well, I think it's very different and uh, I think it has to be, the debate has to be put within the, the history and the concept of devolution. I mean, I think it is very difficult to talk about Sewell without putting it in the context of how devolution has developed and been implemented since Kilbrandon report back in 74. And I, and I mentioned Kilbrandon because I suppose if we've taken on board the crucial recommendations in respect of devolution for England, uh, the discussions we're now having might have been very, very different. I mean, Lord Kilbrandon then recognised that changing one part of the UK constitution for Wales and Scotland did have very significant consequences for uh, for England, which had to be addressed and which have still not been addressed. And in my view, this goes to the nub of our emerging constitutional crisis. And I think there is a crisis. I don't think there's much disagreement that the UK constitution has become dysfunctional. Um, it is a consequence of decades of dereliction and attention to it. Uh, just turning to the Joint Ministerial Council, now that was set up to provide a, a mechanism for the four nations to engage and cooperate in areas of common interest. Um, it's not fit for purpose and calls on the UK government for reform have failed. The, the Interparliamentary Forum on Brexit, which I think is one of the more positive parliamentary developments in recent years, you know, representing the, the various constitutional and legislative parliamentary committees across uh, the four nations, has consistently described it as not fit for purpose. Uh, and the failure to uh, reform this and to deal with this, I think, has been a, a major dereliction of responsibility. I think also the impact of the COVID pandemic has in some ways exposed the constitutional weaknesses because 
our potential strengths, um, uh, you know, it has highlighted in some ways. It has led to the development of four nation government and engagement. However, that engagement has often been inconsistent, fragile and dysfunctional, and this impacts on Sewell. Uh, I have to say, often UK ministers have struggled to understand the importance of mutual engagement and indeed the role of devolved governments and often not even understood when they've been acting in their capacity as UK ministers or when they've been in fact acting as ministers for England. And I, I think this again is part of the problem, defining the role of the UK Parliament within this, acting as a parliament for the whole of the UK, but also as a de facto parliament for England. I think I also have to turn slightly to the role of Brexit in all this, because in April 2018, and some of this impacts on what Karen has just said, the Welsh and the UK government reached an intergovernmental agreement on the EU withdrawal bill and for the establishment of common frameworks. And it was on this basis that we, we gave consent uh, by the Welsh Assembly, now the Senate, uh, to the EU withdrawal bill. Now, discussions on common frameworks and on legislation have been difficult, but they were well underway. The problem we now face, and it's why the report is, is a really good report, I just think is being overtaken by events, is the Internal Market Bill, which drives a coach and horses, not only through the JMC, through the Intergovernmental Agreement, but also undermines the cooperation which have been taking place on the development of common frameworks. And in my view, it threatens to destabilise the UK still further and at the worst possible time. I think that is very politically damaging and irresponsible. If the bill is not substantially reformed or dropped, um, I think it will be the final nail in the coffin of the Sewell Convention and lead to increased fragmentation of the UK and increased political polarisation. My committee's unanimous view uh, and we are a cross-party committee, uh, is that the internal market bill undermines devolution and recentralizes power in the UK government. Now, after the UK government overrode the, overrode the Scottish and Welsh government's refusal to content to the uh, EU withdrawal agreement bill, um, Sewell, at the very best, in my view, has been in intensive care. The internal market bill effectively switches off its life support. And in the present form, I can tell you that I cannot see that consent will be given to the bill. We were told after the uh, overriding of Wales and Scotland in the uh, withdrawal agreement bill that Sewell uh, was, uh, was only breached uh, in specific, singular and exceptional circumstances. And I think there is the nub of the problem. Who decides? The UK government acting as the government of the UK and in other circumstances as the government of England. It writes the rules, then acts as judge and jury in all these matters. So in my view, the only way Sewell Convention can survive is for there to be a dispute resolution procedure and for it to be justiciable. So I welcome the report, but I believe it is too late for the reforms, uh, any reform that does not include dispute resolution and justiciability. Our first minister, uh, said in the beginning of January that this, that this was now a, the convention was now a con constitutional flashpoint. He said the Sewell provides an arbitrary and unilateral power to the UK government to override the refusal of a devolved legislature to give consent without explanation uh, and without accountability to either House of Parliament and the exercise of power. Uh, that is partly dealt with by the report. But I think the internal market bill uh, drives a coach and horses through that and threatens really the stability of the UK. Thank you. Thank you, Mick. Um, Pete, uh, you obviously have an another perspective again, uh, both as chair of the uh, House of Commons Scottish Affairs Committee, um, but also as a as a SNP member of Parliament, uh, the Scottish um, perspective. What's your view um, on these matters? Can I first of all thank you for the very kind invitation to appear this morning? It's been fascinating following this debate. And can I thank you, the Institute of Government, for what is, I think, it's a fantastic document, which is a tour de force of the history and operation of the Seoul Convention. And I think it's a very worthwhile contribution to the debate. And it's always difficult when you follow somebody who almost says exactly what you're going to say in advance. And I think Mick has adequately and perfectly describe some of the issues that we have in the devolved administrations when it comes to the Seoul Conventions. I mean, there's no issue with, with either Wales or Scotland with the eight recommendations that's been made. We, we would probably adopt them tomorrow. There's no issue with that at all. The problem is with the UK government. And, and I'm just wondering what sort of appetite 
a UK government now have for this type of reform, particularly when for them now, particularly during the Brexit process, it's all about a certain parliamentary sovereignty. That's what it was all about. And I think to them that Sewell isn't just so much like something that's got to be reformed and improved and developed. It's, it's an irritant to them now. It's something that's got to be overridden and got to be overruled and accommodated. They won their Brexit battles on the basis of their view of parliamentary sovereignty. And, and I think they want to aggressively assert that just now. And, and what that means is actually aggressively challenging some of the issues around devolution. And we've seen that in the EU Brexit legislation and we're particularly seeing it in spades when it comes to the inter, the internal internal market bill. Now, I think everybody who's watching this would, would accept that there's no secret that relationships in the UK just now across the devolved administrations are, are broken almost beyond repair. Intergovernmental relations are now characterised by mistrust and a total lack of respect. And in the last few years, I would only describe the way that the UK government has approached evolution as a, a sort of aggressive unionism designed to curb the powers of the devolved legislatures and neutralise any challenge that they might present to their greater Brexit project. Now, we've talked about the internal market building. Mean, I, I think, again, again, it's not going to be any secret, but there is no way that a legislative consent motion will ever be granted and something like this in Scotland. And our job is to defend and protect the devolution settlement and ensure that our Scottish democracy is upheld. And what we observe in the internal market bill is a direct challenge to these issues in Scotland. And I think it's also fair to say that the, the intergovernment infrastructure, which has underpinned devolution, is in tatters and it's difficult to see how it's going to be put back together again. I know that Akash gave, gave uh, very valuable evidence to the Scottish Affairs Committee when we looked at intergovernmental relations across the United Kingdom. And what we observed is it's just not fit for purpose. And when we get to the Sioux Convention, it's a, it's a critical principle that's underpinned every facet of devolution. And it's in effect made inter-parliamentary relations work. But it has to be said, it's barely worth the vellum. It's not even been written on. I think Sassoul is, is if, if this was adopted, it could be the basis of a start of making sure that we could get back into a much more level keel when it comes to this. But I just do not think that this is going to happen. There, there maybe was a golden age of Sassoul when there was good relations across all of the UK with governments that had pretty much the same views on the constitution. But that just doesn't work when we have different governments pursuing different priorities with competing political objectives and I don't think Sewell can hold the line and something has to give when you have these situations and that's something I believe has been Sewell. I think for us as long as we're in the UK we'll we'll make everything every attempt to try and design a, an effective means to manage the evolution and try and improve the way that we engage and look at the apparatus that support intergovernmental relations but I think also in Scotland we have to observe that the constitutional middle ground has now more or less disappeared. There's now a clear dividing line between an independence movement that's clearly on the rise, confident, assertive, quickly becoming the new settled will of the Scottish people and an aggressive unionism that wants to assert Westminster sovereignty that has to undermine devolution institutions if it's got to prevail. Um, we're getting to the stage, I think, that devolution is almost lost. If managed and sustained properly, and the Sewell Convention helped to do that, it could just about have brought a permanence to the UK's constitutional arrangements. But I think for most of us in Scotland, now, particularly when we observe opinion polls, that the days of you know the, the high watermark of devolution and with this weird UK symmetry is, is more or less starting to dissipate and disappear. And the failure of devolution with all its all its apparatus has left the, the door open to the independence era that we're just about to enter into just now. I think I'll just end by saying I think that the, the devolution years are, are pretty much coming to an end. Welcome to the independence years. Thank you very much, Pete. Karen, um, I'm going to I'm going to kick off now with some of the questions we've uh, been receiving in from the audience. Uh, thank you, everyone, for 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 sending in your questions. Um, obviously, Karen, you're not a spokesman for the government, um, but um, you're you you're our panelists with a sort of Westminster perspective here. Both um, Pete and Mick have, have have raised the question of you know whether there is any political will um, to do the sorts of 
things that we're proposing um, or, or indeed anything else um, to strengthen the current devolution settlement. What's your um, view on that from Westminster? Well, I think that within Parliament, there is a political will to do it. I can't speak for the government. I'm not a member of the government and I'm not privy to the discussions that happen. But certainly there is a, a, a real desire to deal with these things. And I'd say that's why the committee was keen to look at this. The committee, just like mixed committee in Cardiff, is a, a cross-party committee. Uh, it includes uh, MPs that are members of Pete's party as well. So it, it really does cover all... Uh, parts of Westminster and we were keen unanimously to look at this and, and try and see how we could uh, resolve some of these questions. I mean my committee in its previous incarnation last looked at this over 20 years ago and as I say there was a very different uh, political and constitutional situation. We, had, we, were, we didn't have Brexit and we had harmony for, uh, across the, the, the legislatures in terms of political uh, leaning. So it, there is a will, there is a will amongst parliamentarians and uh, we will do all we can on the procedure committee. What I can't tell you definitively is whether there's a will within government and it wouldn't be right for me to speculate on that. I think that's entirely fair, but I'm just going to push you one a, a little bit further. I mean, what, what, what do you think would make it in the government's interests to pay serious attention to this question? Well, I think that uh, the Internal Markets Bill has brought it to the fore. And I think that whilst uh, an 80 seat majority in the House of Commons makes it easy enough for the government to get difficult legislation through, and, and I say that as somebody who hasn't necessarily voted for the legislation myself, um, but the House of Lords is going to be a very different animal. And a lack of legislative consent motions from three devolved legislatures could be very persuasive to the House of Lords in terms of the way that they decide to vote on this. And, you know, normally what would happen is there would be negotiation, there would be discussion, there would be an attempt to compromise. Mix referred to the agreement that happened on the Withdrawal Act itself, the intergovernmental agreement between uh, Wales and, and London, Cardiff and London, that meant that there was uh, a legislative consent motion uh, from Cardiff that, that, that did persuade the Lords at that time to take uh, to give the Withdrawal Act its third reading. We're in a different situation. We're in a very we've got a very controversial bill that is not supported by uh, including a large number of the government's own members of the House of Lords. And I think this might bring it to the fore. Thank you, Karen. Mick raised um, the question of putting Sewell on, on some kind of either a statutory or justiciable sort of um, uh, uh, standing. Um, Akash, can I just come back to you? I mean, we we you obviously thought in the in the course of um, putting together your recommendations about all the different options for Sewell. What do you think would be the implications of, of putting Sewell um, into statute or making it justiciable? Well, I mean, there's different there's different ways you can put it into statute, and and uh, I mean, pe many people will be aware, but there is a a very a, a limited statutory footing already uh, to the Sewell Convention, all, albeit that um, the Supreme Court has made clear that that it has no <laughs> legal effect at all. But in 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 the Scotland and Wales uh, devolution legislation, the Sewell Convention is recognised. Um, as a as a as a convention that should normally apply, but yes, it's 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 a non uh, justiciable um, section of 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 that legislation. So what else could you do? I mean, we've said in in the report that some of the some of the recommendations we made um, could be put into uh, statute. So there could be, for instance, um, le legal requirements potentially to um well to, to to have a better process of consultation perhaps uh with the devolved administrations to lay uh, the devolution statement i talked about um alongside a bill um those sort of procedural elements perhaps could be um could be put into statute that is 
I mean, and on those, we kind of were open minded. You could also do that through a memorandum of understanding and there might be that that would probably be the the, the the initial way one would would try to go, though. Yes, in the end, it depends on there being willingness on on all sides to to reach that agreement. Um, if you were to go further, and I think the kind of reforms that um, certainly Mick would would favour and, and the Scottish government have have uh, made those recommendations as well. Um, in principle, yes, you could try to you could make Sewell into a legally binding consent requirement. You could essentially um, qualify or constrain parliamentary sovereignty um, and say that if consent has not been given to a bill, to, to a bill that where, 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 where um, the conditions of Sewell are obviously invoked, um, that well, presumably you could say that the the, the courts could um, could disapply that um, legislation or something along those lines. But I think, I mean, the, re the, the conclusion we reached was that really starts to open up a far bigger set of questions about, about the nature of sovereignty, about the relationship between uh, Parliament and the courts, um, about the the governance of England as well like what's England's place within a constitution that starts to become uh, more like a federation um, and those are all really big and important questions that um, were kind of beyond the scope of of our report and and as I said I mean what we've tried to do is is to take as a given that our current constitutional framework including parliamentary sovereignty is here at least for the short term um, and probably for the medium term at least, um, given that, what could you do to improve things? And alongside trying to improve the system along the way we've suggested, by all means, let's have that wider debate. Um, but I think, um, yeah, as I say, we've, 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 we've slightly worked within the, the bounds of, of political reality because we're actually quite keen to, to improve how things operate um, in, in the here and now. Thanks, Akash. And I should have said that that was a question, a question from Andrew Andrew Potts. Um, we've got another question from an anonymous uh, uh, viewer about which just builds on that. And this is a question I think for um, Pete and for Mick, um, saying the Seal Convention, as it as it stands, is partly designed to uphold the sovereignty of the UK Parliament. And so, if, as you suggest, um, it were possible to make the Seal Convention more binding. Would that have implications for the sovereignty of the UK Parliament and then just we would end up in a sort of stalemate on the most politically con contentious issues? Well, so this is the, the, the big issue, isn't it? You know, I mean, this is a, a, a more assertive uh, UK Parliament that's just renewed its whole idea of parliamentary sovereignty through its Brexit battle. It was all about taking back control and taking back control doesn't mean control to Edinburgh or Cardiff. I mean, let's be clear about this. It's control for Westminster. And it sits very uneasily with this idea of Scottish and Welsh democracy, where you know we we have a vested interest in ensuring that the devolution settlement and the powers that are our responsibility are upheld and maintained. So you've got this inevitable tension just now, and I just don't see any appetite whatsoever. In fact, the exact opposite for an accommodation across the United Kingdom, which respects that within Scotland and Wales. Now they'll talk about respecting it, but they never do. I mean, one of the things in the Internal Markets Bill, for example, means that for the first time ever in the whole history of devolution, the UK government can directly invest its own priorities in what are the devolved areas and responsibilities in Scotland, because what the UK has actually done is assumed the powers of the EU when it's come to structural funding and spending. And the thing that they have accepted this equivalence of UK rule across the United, United Kingdom with the EU, and they're, they're so different. I could go into 100 reasons <laughs> the UK is different to the EU. And let me be absolutely clear from Scotland, we would accept the authority of the EU any day before the authority of the United Kingdom when it comes to these. So you've got these inevitable tensions just now, which like I wish Karen all the best in her inquiry. I'm very much looking forward to its conclusions and recommendations. But the battle you've got is just so overwhelming. I mean, there is nothing that the Institute for Government are recommending today that we couldn't agree in the next 10 minutes. I mean, we, we want to do this. We want to try and ensure that there's better. Well, we're still part of the UK. The devolution works better. 
But you're not going to get the UK government to agree to this. There's just no way on earth would do it. This is a UK government that's on a completely different trajectory where the assertion of their parliamentary sovereignty is everything to it. So I, I just really see how, how, how it can work. And unless you get a completely different mindset from the UK government, which there is no indication whatsoever that they're even thinking about. Nick, did you want to come back on that one? Yeah, no, no, I did. And uh, I think a cash and Pete... Uh, Peter hit really the nub of the issue. Um, to what extent we have moved on, as Peter says, from devolution. We've actually moved during COVID to a much closer system of four-nation government. And, you know, it's quite amazing how that could actually, uh, you know, on many occasions actually work very effectively. Now, Akash talked about not perhaps going so far as tackling with the issue of sovereignty. But to be honest, that is the nub of the matter now, uh, that we, unless we move to this issue of shared sovereignty as opposed to the sovereignty uh, of the UK Parliament, we really can't resolve these. And unless subsidiarity is really at the core of this, uh, there, there is really nowhere to go because you take an internal market bill that effectively, it doesn't matter how you reform Sewell, you have an internal market bill that enables the UK government, and almost without any scrutiny from Westminster or any of the devolved nations anyway, to day by day overrule and override the devolution settlement. It actually drives a coach and horses, as I said, through, through that. i just give you one example. Um, we, we have a restriction on genetically modified foods within Wales. If the UK government does a trade deal that allows genetically modified food from wherever, well, it overrides us. It, it overrides us in so many environmental areas, in, in food standard areas, uh, and it almost says, well, then what is the purpose uh, of having devolved government? If in all these areas I can stand for an election, I can stand on a manifesto, I will not know from one day to the next to what extent I will ever be able to implement that. And that goes to the nub of it. So until there is some clear delineation of powers, a mechanism for resolving disputes and a mechanism for actually enforcing that. Because I have to say, uh, basing the whole of this on trust, that might have been possible a few years ago. We've moved into a far more sophisticated constitutional relationship, and it has to be far more uh, effectively defined within the structures of, of you know, post-devolution government. Just building on what you're saying there, Mick, about the internal market bill, do you think it's inevitable now that the uh, that there won't be consent, or do you think there's any, any way in which the bill could be amended which would enable um, the Welsh Senate, uh, from your perspective, to give consent to it? Well, listen, it would have to be very, very substantially reformed, almost to such an extent that you actually remove the bill, because the crux of it is that this bill wasn't necessary. The whole process between the uh, the four nations was going to be about the establishment of mutual common frameworks and agreements. And it was a decision by the UK government to totally override that. That is what's understandable. The fact that Welsh government didn't actually see the bill until two days before it was actually presented, I think is an indication of that. So uh, the answer is, I find it very difficult to see. We will, listen, uh, uh, Labour will, certainly work to reform it, to take all those bits out, to minimise the damage it has. But I have to say that, uh, you know, I would prefer the bill to go completely. But if it is, if it could be reformed, well, you know, there may still be an unsatisfactory situation that still doesn't resolve the constitutional crisis that, that we actually have. And these broader issues of sovereignty and subsidiarity, unless they are dealt with, um, uh, you know, uh, are a flat constitutional flashpoint, as the Welsh First Minister said. Can I just say very briefly, I mean, that is totally the view from Scotland, everything that Mick says here. In fact, it's probably worse than that, that we see the internal market bill as a direct assault on our Scottish democracy and our Scottish, the powers of the Scottish Parliament. That's as bad as it is. And there is just no way that we could see how this could be reformed. And it really has to be withdrawn if they are serious about respecting devolution. The two, the two points to that, so I just got to come in. One is either that the bill is just a mistake and sort of negligence in approach, 
or it is deliberate. I have to say the view I increasingly come to is that it is deliberate and it is a deliberate political intention of UK government. And if that is correct, um, it really even undermines the concept of any reform based on trust. Karen, if consent is not given uh, to the Internal Market Bill, how do you think the UK Parliament ought to respond? Well, I think that, as I've said already, the House of Commons, um, with the majority of the government have, will, I suspect, vote with the government and the bill will go to the Lords. It's the Lords where it's going to be interesting. Um, and without the support of all of the members of the House of Lords that sit on the government benches, which is clearly the position at the moment, and it might be that that position is due to different reasons, than the reasons why Mick and Pete are uh, exercised by the bill, but they are still uh, valid reasons. Um, it's unlikely that uh, legislative consent motion not coming from the three devolved legislatures will persuade the crossbenchers, which are the key here. So the government needs the crossbenchers and a majority of its own members to walk through the division lobby to get the bill through and to give it a third reading. And I think that's where that's where the, the the argument's going to be. That's where the battle lines will be drawn. It's going to be those crossbenchers and how they react to this and how persuasive that lack of legislative consent motion is to them. Um, and that's where I think we should all, you know, that's where the interest is going to be for the constitutional, uh, 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 those inter interested in the constitution is going to be how the House of Lords react. And whether actually that then leads to the government using that as an opportunity to do something to radical to the House of Lords will be another uh, interesting uh, question for us to, to see what happens. Um, but I think that's where we should focus. I, I think that the arguments in the House of Commons are probably not where the interest lies, it's in the Lords we should be looking at. But then what will happen, of course, is that the Lords will ask the Commons to think again. And I'm interested in what happens at that at that point. I mean, well, not necessarily. If the Lords decline third reading, then the Commons can't think again. That will be an interesting situation. Mick, you wanted to come in. Yeah, can I just say, isn't it absolutely incredible that the whole future uh, of the Union, the relationship between the four nations, uh, is potentially under threat and going to be determined by a, a group of unelected yes. peers. I mean, uh, you know, this is just not the way for nations to get together and to resolve their mutual interests. Uh, and that's why that's why I say this whole bill uh, is an absolute disaster waiting to happen. I'm going to put my foot down and say we're not going to get into the House of Lords reform this morning as well as, as Sewell and, and evolution. Um, but thank you. <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree. Um, it's another anonymous question um, in the Q&A saying, what do we think of the fact, what should we make of the fact that the Seal Convention is expressed as being between legislatures, but is essentially managed between governments? And I think that's probably an interesting question for you to explore in your uh, inquiry, Karen, but I wondered if any of you had, had thoughts on that. You've, you, All of you, between you, got experience of different parts of the process. Um, Karen? I think that's a really important point. Um, I mean, one of the things that I personally am not a fan of is English votes for English laws. That was a decision by a government to do something in response to uh, demands from from English voters to see some sort of recognition of English laws should be decided by English uh, MPs. But it was it, it wasn't a Parliament was 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 asking for that. That was the government brought that in. And you're absolutely right. And this is always actually with so much that we're doing, you know, the procedures of the House of Commons at the moment, you might have seen there was a bit of a debate last night around whether we should return to remote voting or stick with proxy voting. I think the majority of the House of Commons probably wants to go to remote voting and vote from its phone because it's more efficient and effective. Not about not being in Parliament, it's about having a safe and effective way of voting. But the government brings forward the legislation because the or the motions because the government controls the order paper. Now, actually, constitutionally, the government controlling the order paper is a really important thing. If the government doesn't control it, then actually, you know, you, you're putting power in the hands of people who who are not the executive, you know, would be it the speaker or a house business committee or something else. So I think there are good reasons why the government controls that. But but the government controlling the order paper, the government controlling and the executives controlling 
the the relationships between the devolved nations does make for that interesting contrast. And the, you're absolutely right, Hannah. This is one of those points that, as the committee, we'd love to hear evidence on. We'd love to hear people's views on it, and really do want to get into whether there is something that needs to change now um, to reflect this new constitutional settlement <coughs> with of the United Kingdom outside the EU. Mick, I can see you with your hand up. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it is an interesting question. I think it's more an interesting question for Westminster rather than Wales and Scotland, Northern Ireland, certainly Wales and Scotland, I, I know very well where there is a very close relationship and working between uh, the assemblies and parliaments and, uh, and the governments. It is really more a problem for a UK parliament that uh, has an clarity about its own role, whether it is acting as government, as, as uh, a UK legislature, or whether it's acting as an English legisl legislature. Uh, and that is that area that really has to be uh, resolved. It does take us into deeper constitutional questions, uh, but it is, you know, the fly in the ointment. And indeed, we've got another question um, from, from an, again, anonymous viewer saying, can Sewell ever be fully entrenched when there is no devolution and a separate voice or voices in England? I think that's the, the key question then there's when we get around the table in any of the intergovernmental infrastructure we've got the uk who effectively set up the rules put together all the institutions are there representing the whole of the uk and also representing england and it just it's just such an imbalance to the power arrangements and relationships across the united kingdom that you have that disproportionate amount of influence and authority when it comes to these meetings. And we know that there's no appetite for any regional assemblies across, across England. It's, and people talk about federalism, and I know that this Labour's view in Scotland, that a federal solution will somehow resolve all these difficulties and problems, but that'll only begin if we ever get any sort of sense that like there will be a, a federal arrangement put across England. Now, we could have federalism with the nations of the United Kingdom, but then you've got a situation where England accounts for something like over nine-tenths of the whole population of the UK and how that would work. But something's going to have to be done about this. And this gets to the crux of all the difficulties that we have about the UK assuming the responsibilities for the whole of the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but also all the responsibilities for England. And I'm, and I'm afraid that nearly every single issue when we look at intergovernment relations falls at that particular hurdle and test. Mick, did you want to come back in on that? Uh, to say that I totally agree with Peter, you know, it is it is the issue that we've consistently raised. We understand it very well in Wales and Scotland, you know, because uh, we, we almost have to live with this day by day. I, I, I don't particularly agree with Peter because I, I think the idea of regional assemblies was, I just don't think it, the, the, the devolution debate in England has ever been in any way strategically developed. And until that happens, uh, it'd be difficult to see what progress there is. But there is devolution in England in some extent. You have uh, more powerful mayors, you have the London Authority. Let's take London, you know, where half the wealth of the UK is based in in around that around the uh, southeast of England. You know, addressing that has got to take place uh, because I think Sewell and I think the whole process of decentralization of power which for me is what devolution is ultimately uh, about, can't take place uh, in any realistic way until the English question is uh, dealt with and resolved. And on the note, we have to draw this to a close very soon, but I just want to put David Gow's question uh, in, in to all of you. And, and he asks, do we need to go beyond Sewell and thinking about intergovernmental relations and so on and seriously consider having a constitutional convention at this point? A very quick response from each of you, please. Um, Pete. Oh, no, no, not constitutional convention again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a no from Pete. Mick. Uh, yeah, no, listen, absolutely. I think there has to be a constitutional convention to determine what the function and purpose of the UK is and whether people, whether the nations uh, want to buy into that or not. Uh, and that is the ultimate longer term solution. Akash, and then I'll come to you, uh, Karen, last. I think it does increasingly feel that, you know, Brexit is going to, we're going to look back at Brexit as a sort of critical juncture in the in the development of the of the UK constitution. Um, who knows which way it will go? But I, I think there are some these big questions about the future of the union that one way or the other are going to need to be um, grappled with, whether a big 
constitutional convention is is necessarily the right model. Um, I'm open minded about that. But um, as I say, I think there's things you can do in the short term. But yes, certainly have the, have the bigger debate about how and whether that this whole thing is going to hang together or not. Karen, would you like well, to? Well, I'm going to I'm going to take the the coward's way out of this and say I'm not going to prejudge <laughs> the evidence we're going to receive or the findings of the inquiry that we're working on. But I think. You know, there is what's clear from this last hour is there are far more questions being raised than we have we have answers to at the moment. And uh, what we want to look at for the procedure committee in a probably very limited way is just how we can address these some of these questions uh, in a in a positive and constructive way to get some solutions in the short term. Thanks, Karen, and thank you to all our panelists. I think that's been a really fascinating discussion. Um, <clears throat> really kind of you to come along and, and discuss our new report. And thank you to everyone who's been watching. Um, and a final thank you uh, to the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust for sponsoring this event today. Many thanks. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.